Well, do take your Bibles and we'll turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. If you'd like to use the Pew Bible, that's page 660. We're just going to look at a few verses today as we conclude our summer series, um, looking at the various covenants of um, God between, between God and humanity throughout the scriptures. This is our final sermon in that series. We'll begin next week um, with the a return to our study in Acts. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. That's one of those, just, that's just an, a gift from God. He doesn't need to do this, but sometimes it's really hard to remember where certain things are. If you want a proof text for the New Covenant, 3131. That's it. Jeremiah 3131. It's right there. Easy to remember. Let's give careful attention now to this precious word from God. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. As far the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Before we dive in, Adam, I wonder, could I ask you to close uh, the other door there? Thank you. Uh, we're looking at um, Jeremiah's prophecy, and he's writing specifically, speaking specifically to Judah. And things aren't looking good for Judah, to say the least. Uh, at this point in the prophecy, we're at chapter 31, there's been essentially 29 chapters of doom and gloom for God's people on account of their sin and their rebellion against God, um, warning them of things that will come upon them because of their sin, in some cases explaining the things that have already come upon them. He's saying it's because you're sinners, it's because you're rebels, it is because you're covenant breakers. Now, as I said, he's speaking to Judah. That's Israel's, the few tribes of Israel to the um, south. They're collectively known as Judah. At this point, their relatives to the north, known as Israel, have already been carted off by the Assyrians. And now it's looking like the same is about to happen to uh, the southern tribe by the Babylonians. Being dispossessed from the land was one of the covenantal curses that God had been warning since Deuteronomy, since the days before they acquired the land. We read of it even in Deuteronomy 6. This is what you need so your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Okay? This is what you need to know so that you don't lose out on the land. Losing the land was perhaps the worst of all curses. And their inability to keep the land is really a sign of their inability to keep their end of the bargain, to keep their end of the covenant. 
The covenantal arrangement was that God would bless them if. I will do this if you do something, if you obey me, namely. Well, something had to change because clearly they could not obey. If there was ever to be hope of Israel dwelling in the promised land and fellowshipping with God, something had to give. Something had to change. The old way wasn't working. Jeremiah has driven that point home through the, the first 29 chapters. But then in chapter 30, you can look there with me real quick, just flip the page. You see that, that something changes. Something changes. 30, verse 3. For behold, days are coming when I will restore the fortunes of my people. It had been all kind of depressing and despairing. But then God talks about centering his covenantal everlasting love on the people. Chapter 31 at the beginning. Verse 3 again. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've continued my faithfulness to you. God's saying, yes, these curses are coming upon me because of your disobedience, but it doesn't mean even though you lost the land that you lost me. I am still for you. I still want your blessing. I still want you to prosper and for things to go well with you. So the tone has kind of changed when we get to chapter 30. And it culminates in the verses that we read towards the end of chapter 31. For people who know that something needs to change, that the old way isn't working, God promises something new. He promises a new covenant. A new covenant. So that's what we're going to examine today in our final study on covenant theology. We want to ask four questions about this covenant. Who is it for? How is it new? Related to that, what does it do? And then finally, most importantly of all, when will it happen? When will it happen? So those are the four questions today. Who's it for? How's it new? What does it do? When will it happen? First, who's this covenant for? Well, the answer to that question underscores that although it's a new covenant, there's some things about it that are same old, same old. The covenant is being made with the same people that God had always been dealing with. So look at verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The same people who have descended from God's amazing covenant with Abraham. In fact, they are the result of God's covenant with Abraham. Remember, he said, I'll make you into a great nation. Well, Israel and Judah, that, there it is. There they are. They are that promise fulfilled in part, they are the great nation that's descended from, from Abraham. And what we're learning here, God's saying, I'm not leaving you. I'm not going to start over with some, somebody new. It's still for you. I'm making a new covenant with the same old people. Do you get that? You need to belong to Israel, though, if you want to receive that blessing. It's a really important point for us to grasp. If you want to be part of this covenant, if you want to receive all of the blessings of salvation, you need to belong to Israel. There's no other way. This is who God works with and God works for. Well, then you ask, Pastor, how can I do that? Few of us here, I would imagine, are Jews by birth. 
Um, uh, we have uh, people in our congregation from, from all over, and you might be asking, well, how can I be a part of this covenant since I'm of German descent or Irish descent or because I'm Chinese or because I'm Japanese or well, because I'm Dutch? You know, we have that lovely saying here. The non-Dutch really love it when you all tell us if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. Yeah, okay. You know, it would be uh, perfectly biblical to say, though, if you ain't an Israelite, you ain't much. In fact, you got nothing. Because God's covenant of salvation is only made with these descendants, these people who come from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. So, how do you get to be a part of that? Can it be for you? It can. It can. Paul tells us in Galatians 3, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God, through faith, through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and so now there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male or female. You're all one in Christ, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heir according to the promise. How can you become an Israelite? How can you get into this covenant? You don't need to change your passport. You don't need to matriculate and and get a, a, a new nationality, become a citizen of a new nation. We're all sons of Abraham and therefore sons of God through faith. You need to believe. That's it. Belief brings you into the covenant people. If you want to receive all the blessings that are promised in this new covenant, then you need to belong to Christ by faith. So who's it for? It's, it's for you today, if you believe. How's it new? That's the second question. Look, we're, we're moving right along. Four questions. We're already in the second one. How's it new? Well, this is a really important question to ask because we want to acknowledge, first of all, that God's way of salvation has been the same since man first fell into sin. His way of salvation has always been that he would send a Savior to defeat Satan and all who believe in him would be saved. And uh, this new covenant is not new in accordance with that, as though God's now going to do salvation through a new way. It's new in, in respect to the administration of the Mosaic covenant. We looked at that four weeks ago, maybe. But look at verse 32 of our text. He says, this new covenant, he compares it with another, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's a reference to the days of Moses, right? He was the one who led people uh, out of Egypt. And under Moses, God administered his covenant of grace primarily through laws, through regulations, through restrictions, through ceremonies, rituals, and, and All of these were meant to drive the people to to an end of themselves so that they would find that their only hope is in the God who brought them out of Egypt. But their hearts were hard. They were rebellious. And it wasn't working. Rather than than that, that administration under Moses bringing people closer to the God of blessing by, by understanding more of his character his demands for holiness and the need for sacrifice, rather than it bringing them closer to God, they were finding that it was actually 
pushing them further away from God. Rather than receiving blessing, they were receiving curse after curse. They just couldn't do it. It wasn't working. But, but of course, it's important to say that the reason it wasn't working had no fault at all to do with the covenant itself. Or the God who made the covenant. No, the fault lies with the people with whom that covenant was made. Sinners. There wasn't anything defective in God's administration or his plan. In fact, Jeremiah, he's prophesying at a moment we could call a high point of the Mosaic administration because concurrent with Jeremiah's ministry, something really exciting is happening in Israel's history. There's this guy who becomes king. His name is Josiah. Boys and girls, you might remember what makes Josiah such a great king. He finds something. He finds the Torah. He finds the law of God that had been lost for so many years and so many generations, and and they're reading it, and he realizes we have not been obeying the way that God has called us to obey. We need to change, and he institutes all of these these reforms in Israel. It's this wonderful moment of returning to the way things are supposed to be, and yet that reform did not outlive Josiah. As soon as he died, things devolve again. In the words of Derek Kidner, he's a commentator, he says, the response was only skin deep. This then was God's moment Referring to Jeremiah 31, this then was God's moment to speak of a covenant that would be heart deep and everlasting. And that gets to the heart of this covenant. The heart of the covenant is heart change. Our third question this morning, what does this new covenant do? Look with me again at verses 33 and 34. God tells us, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. What will he do? I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sins no more. What's happening here? Well, first, hearts were made to know and to love God's law. That's that's what God is promising will happen under the new covenant. Hearts will be made to know God's law and to love God's law, to be drawn to it. Now, of course, it's not that the heart didn't matter under the Old Covenant. We read this already in our service from Deuteronomy 6. Let me, rem- let me remind you, in, in Deuteronomy, God says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your what? With all your heart. Heart matters. And then, and then he goes on to say, And these words that I command you shall be on your, on your heart. Here's the difference, though. Under the Old Covenant, it was like this. The word of God shall be on your heart. Or the word of God should be on your heart. Under the new covenant, the word of God will be on your heart. And what's the difference? Because now God himself is picking up that pen of the human heart, so to speak, and writing in indelible markings upon your very soul what you need to know to love God to enjoy God, and to glorify him forever. Do you see this distinction? Old covenant, you need to do this. This is the command. Put it on your heart. 
And sinners say, we can't. And God says, I will. That's what will happen in this new covenant. It will be pressed upon our hearts, and we will know God's law. There's immense freedom in knowing something by heart, isn't there? Have you experienced that freedom of having something memorized? Um, you know, say you're on the road, you're driving home late at night, and your phone dies. Well, you could be in trouble if you don't know the way. But if you have it memorized, losing a GPS doesn't really phase you. You can make it back home. You're secure, you're safe, you're stable. Back in 1999, one of the most famous classical pianists of all time, she's still living and she's still playing, uh, Maria Juo Pires, was scheduled to play a Mozart concerto at the um, Amsterdam uh, New Symphony Orchestra. The house was packed um, to hear this, uh, this amazing artist performing uh, something in her wheelhouse. She's known for, for Mozart. And she... If you've ever been to a classical concert, you know there's a lot of um, um, there's a certain um, decorum. There's a certain way things are done. You know the orchestra comes out and they they um, uh, sit there. Nobody says anything for the poor folks in the orchestra. But then the conductor comes out and everybody claps. And then the first chair violinist comes out and everybody claps. And then they tune. And then the concert pianist would come out and everybody stands up and the, even the orchestra will kind of stand up. Look at this person. They've come all this way. They're amazing. You are so lucky, you peons in the back row, to be able to hear this amazing artist. And the, four, the first chord of the symphony strikes up. And you can see it. There's video. 1999, Amsterdam. Maria's face is fallen. And literally, she puts her head in her palm. She had been asked to play this concerto months and months earlier. And she practiced and she uh, prepared accordingly the wrong concerto for months. And everything stops. I mean, can you, I mean, I can't even imagine. You know, I have certain. You know, when you're in public speaking, you have all kinds of nightmares. Like, for me, it's usually waking up at 10.30 on Sunday. (gasps) Can you imagine, though, this isn't a nightmare. This is real. And the conductor comes over to Maria, and they're whispering, and she's, you know, like, there's this whole thing. And he gives her this, just this nod of affirmation. He just, yeah, okay. He goes back, starts up the same symphony, the same chord, and she's standing there, or sitting there. Her hand isn't in her palm anymore, but she's just kind of eyes wide. And then comes that moment where she's to begin. And she had pulled out from her memory bank that entire other concerto and played it for 30 minutes without missing a single note. You see, there's this, this freedom, this security, when you know something by heart. Wouldn't you love to live life, never wondering, never questioning, never doubting if the decisions you make are pleasing in the eyes of God, but having this certainty that you know what he wants, you know what will make him happy, and therefore what will make you happy. The new covenant promises that. 
because God will write his law, his ways on your heart. You can know that freedom. It also promises the new covenant that the people would live with this God. Uh, there's, there's no mediation needed. God himself will be with them as their God. That's why it says nobody's going to have to teach you. We'll, we'll just know because God's right there. No mediation. And, 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 and they're dwelling with him. I, I'll be their God. They shall be my people. There's that wonderful covenant refrain. And all of this is only because what verse 34 says. Look with me there at the very end. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I'll remember their sin no more. The all-knowable God under the new covenant, the omniscient God, chooses to forget. He chooses to forget our sins. The God who knows all things from, from first to last, from beginning to end, chooses, wills that he will not remember our sins. Matthew Henry says, It is sin that keeps good things from us, that stops the current of God's favors. But let sin be taken away by pardoning mercy, and that obstruction is removed, and divine grace runs deep like a river, like a mighty Stream. In other words, nothing will stand between God and his people once sin is removed. And that's what God promises in the new covenant. I'm not going to remember your sin anymore. So, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? A, a, a relationship, a, a time uh, with a, a covenant promise where we are with God, doing what God wants, and, and never having to fear that past, the past sins that in days of old have hindered our relationship with God. It's all done away with. What an amazing thing. Could it get any better than this? Jeremiah has convicted the people of God of their rebellion and sin, the curse that would hang over them on account of the Mosaic Covenant unless something would change. And then indeed, he announces that that change will come. A new covenant is coming. And along with it, a way for God's people to experience his blessings like never before. But then there's one thing that Jeremiah does not do. He doesn't tell us when it will happen. And that's the final question this morning. That certainly would have been, I think, the most pressing question to the original audience. They hear about all these wonderful things. Great. When will I get it? All they're given is this vague prediction. The days are coming. Okay. Like tomorrow? Like next week? When will it be here? It's hard waiting for something new, something new that you know you need and having to be told time and again it's been delayed. I mean, is that not the, all of our stories the last two years with supply chain disruptions and my poor brother and sister-in-law by sort of freak accident, the... Uh, I don't want to get too graphic, but let's just say that the kitty litter was blocked off and the cats didn't know what to do. They have five of them. That's their own problem there. But, and so the couch became the, the, uh, the kitty's bathroom. Th that smell does not come out. It does not. Their couch is ruined. Okay, we need to get a new couch. They order the new couch. It will be here in 12 months. And they could follow it. They, you know, they have this tracking, and it will be like, it's in the port in you know, Southern California. 
Actually, now it's getting rerouted back to, you know, a different country. What? No, don't bring it here. When you know you need something new, when you know that new thing will answer your problem, you want it right away. Years go by for Israel. Centuries. One wonders if Israel began to doubt if God's covenant promises, those made to Abraham, David, even the one made by Jeremiah here, if they would ever come to pass. But then one night, in a small room in Jerusalem, and 12 ordinary men, average Joes, not, not the uh, elites of society, most of them were just fishermen, were privileged to hear these words. This is the new covenant in my blood. It was here. It had arrived. They were the first to learn what we now hold so dear that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And not just in Jesus, but in his death specifically. That's what we learn at the moment Uh, that the Lord's Supper is instituted. Let's turn there here in closing to Luke 22. Luke chapter 22. Let's begin with verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it unless, uh, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. You can't read this scene and miss the fact that it's really all about the death of Jesus. It's about his dying. It's all over the place. He begins by saying uh, it's a meal he wants to have before he would suffer, suffer unto death. And he ends by warning that there's a man right there at the table who's going to betray him unto death. But what happens in the center section? What's he saying as he broke the bread? This is my body. This is what's going to happen to it. It will be broken. I will die. Why? Well, what does he say when he takes the cup? He says, I want you to look into this cup, into that dark, sparkling liquid of refreshing wine, and I want you to think of my blood Because it is only through my death that all of the promises of the new covenant could ever come to pass. Namely, even, the promise of dwelling with God and feasting with him forever. I had to die. I have to die to make this 
happen, Jesus says. His death inaugurates the new covenant. Without his death, Jeremiah 31 could never come to pass. Friends, all of those blessings that are promised in Jeremiah 31 come to us because of Jesus. You get a new heart because his heart was crushed. You you are forgiven because he's forsaken. And it can be said of you that you are God's and God is yours, that you are his people, you belong to him Because on the cross, God said, I want nothing to do with this one. And he rejects his son so that we can be received. Who would think that a death could start something so wonderful? Have you ever thought of that? That a death could start something so amazing? That a death could actually inaugurate an undying kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting covenant. You know, this past week I received uh, the first round of edits for my next book from a publisher in the UK. And I was looking through her edits. This is on Monday or Tuesday. And in the book I had an illustration about the queen. And she wrote in the comments on Monday or Tuesday of, this, of, the, of the draft I got back. It would be best to remove queen and just put monarch because this book will likely, or this illustration would likely date you because odds are by the time the book comes out, the queen won't be with us. Three days later, she died. I wonder if that editor knew something. But once that queen died, what happened? You've seen it on the news, right? Operation London Bridge. Operation Unicorn. The British government and, the, the, uh, and Buckingham Palace had put into place these contingencies, these plans, these operations, decades earlier of what would happen when the queen dies. Who would need to be informed and in what order? Where would they need to be? And what do we say and who says it? All of these things were, were um, put down to, to, to the most minutest of details, and the question is why? why? Why do contingency plans like Operation London Bridge exist? Because the British government recognized the death of a monarch is perhaps the most fragile moment in a nation's existence. It's a moment of crisis. One step goes wrong and the whole thing could topple over. And so could you believe, though, that there is a kingdom where the death of the king does not compromise the kingdom, but actually constitutes it. It's a kingdom of dying love in the person of Jesus Christ for us to receive the unending favor of God. And today, brothers and sisters, I invite you to enjoy the blessings of the new covenant. To that question of when does it happen, the answer is now. Christ has died. He's died to make it happen for you and for me today. Do you want a new heart? Do you want to be able to do what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6? Be obedient from the heart. Do you want to be forgiven? Do you want to dwell with God forever? You can today if you believe
And Paul calls himself and other preachers ministers of the new covenant. That's what we're all about as a church here, a community. We preach and teach and share and we grow in the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ because all of those blessings held out in the new covenant are found in him and in him alone. And he's here. He's arrived. We are a new covenant community. We come to the living Jerusalem. Israel thought it was bad to lose out on that physical, that earthly Jerusalem when they were exiled. And yet we come to something that we could never lose out on, something that could never be taken away from us here on earth. Because guess what? It's in heaven. And that's where we go when we worship. That, that this, if you understand what God is doing for you and has done for you in the gospel, in the new covenant, the greatest, uh, the most appropriate response will be worship. Worship. Because when we come to worship, we come to that place that he's opened up to us, the new and heavenly Jerusalem. We come to his presence. Right now, we can do that. If you get the gospel, if you get what Jesus has done, you won't be able to stay away from public worship. Because it is here where we, where we see where we touch, where we hear, where we'll, we'll even taste in a moment the blessings of the new covenant. We can do that right now. When's it happening? Now. But, while the answer is now, it is also not yet. Because you'll, you'll recognize it doesn't take a whole lot of thinking to, to acknowledge that uh, your life doesn't exactly comport with the uh, life of Jeremiah 31. Our hearts are still divided. We still sin. We still need people to teach us. But the Spirit of Christ poured out from heaven, just as the blood of Christ was poured out from the cross, that Spirit now has come into our hearts and He's inching us ever closer, closer and closer to experience the full blessings of the new covenant. It begins now, but it will be completed. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as a means for us to remember that we belong to this new covenant. That it has come, the new covenant kingdom has come. But he also uses it to remind us that it's not yet fully here. Look back at Luke 22 and verse 18. What does he say? He says, well, verse 16. I tell you, I will not eat it. Until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then verse 18, from, uh, I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So, so Jesus has this feast, bread and wine, this one time to say the kingdom has come. But then to promise us, or to let us recognize it's not fully here, but promise us that it will one day be here. He says, the next time I pick up a glass of wine. <laughs> It will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb when I've made all things new. He's abstaining until that moment. Isn't that interesting? Here we come today and we feast on Christ, the living Christ. By the Spirit, our our hearts are raised to heaven and we feed on him. But he himself won't feast again until we are literally with him face to face. He's waiting for us. And Jesus never 
waits in vain. He guarantees that what he has started, he will see to completion. There is coming a day when we're going to partake of, of, of a meal like this one and not have to, to in some sense, rely on our, our memories or our spiritual disciplines. There's going to come a day when we're going to have a feast like this and we will know that we're with Jesus because we'll actually see him. He'll be right there with us. Can you even wait? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the new covenant and the promise that you've given to us that you're making all things new. And we know what it, what it took. We've, we've just considered it. For, for this something new, Jesus had to die. Lord, would that bring us great humility and great love and affection for our Savior? Would you draw us more deeply to him? And would you help us to rely on your Holy Spirit so that we could live out more and more each day through sanctification the realities of the promises afforded to us in the new covenant. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.